Father, we just thank you so much for your word, and we just uh, ask you to bless as we look at um, John's wonderful exhortations here and reminders to, to be authentic uh, before you. In Christ's name, amen. So, so last week we were talking about this idea of uh, fellowship, and first the Apostle John told us that he, along with others, had heard, seen, beheld, I'm going to say, and touched the word of life. So in 1 John um, 1 and 2, the first two verses there, John says the life was manifested, that is he appeared in the world, and he goes on and he says we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So the eternal life is a, a phrase he's using to describe Christ who was manifested to us. And then in verse 3 he said what we have seen and heard, notice how he keeps emphasizing that, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. So that word fellowship is going to appear in our text today as well. So the, the church is a fellowship of those, um, the, with this, those who share a life in Jesus. I guess that's the best way to say it. We sh have a shared life in Christ. So it's a way of life. But it's more than that. It's more than that as well. There's a unity that binds us in our common faith. But more than that, we have a shared union with the Spirit of God. That's incredibly profound. We share the experience that the Holy Spirit has done in each of our hearts. This awakening that he's brought into our hearts. This awakening to receive Jesus. But more than that, the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us. So every true believer has the Holy Spirit residing in us. And the Holy Spirit is God, Christ is God, and the Father is God. So you can just, God is residing in us in a very beautiful and wonderful way. So his very presence in us binds us together. And that's why no matter where we go, we have this unity with other believers. And you, I've been in a lot of weird places in the world. And you know what? Christians are the same everywhere. It really is true. And it's a wonderful thing, especially Bible Christians, Bible-centered Christians, right? Um, you know, on Monday, I was talking with this young man who's on a, a very large um, ministry team in Dubai. So he's from India. He's ministering in Dubai in this church. And he's coming out here to go to seminary. So he's kind of looking for churches in the area that he might want to connect with. So we were just having a conversation on Zoom. And he, he told me that this Dubai church, it's like 2,000 people. It's very international. And he said there's, I, I can't remember the number. It was something like 50 or more countries represented in one church, people from all over the world. And that ju I, ju I told him, I said, that just sounds like heaven, doesn't it? <laughs> it's like that's the way heaven is described in the Bible. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are going to be there together. And that church just sounds like a little slice of heaven. So all those cultures, and yet, in Christ, there's this incredible unity. And that unity is not manufactured by man. It's, it's the work of God in us as the body of Christ to have that kind of unity. I hope that guy shows up here, but I'm not too sure. I think we're a little too far away from school, but uh, wonderful young man. Anyway, there's reason to think that John mentions fellowship in the opening verses because a really careful reading of this book, this letter, suggests that the fellowship had been broken in the church or the churches he's writing to because false teachers had led some of the people astray, away. Because he's going to talk about it at the end of the book in a very specific way. But last time we talked about the Gnostics, this, this spin-off of Christianity that denied every major tenet of our faith, every great doctrine of our faith. But they used Jesus as a tool 
to um, assert their philosophy, which is really what it is, it was more philosophical than profoundly religious or anything. But they especially denied, and you'll remember, the main thing they denied was that God could become human, truly human, uh, God in flesh. That's what they denied. Uh, that would never happen because according to them, um, the flesh is evil and God is pure, so how could God possibly do that, right? So Christ made no atonement for sin because our problem, according to the Gnostics, is our material bodies, not our souls. So your soul is an imprisoned thing in your body and Christ came to give us secret knowledge to set us free. That's what the Gnostics taught. And some people in the church John's writing to believed them and followed them out. And that was a great tragedy, a break of fellowship there. So all of that was going on. So the Gnostics denied the gospel itself, which means they actually denied salvation to those that were going to follow them. They, they kept them from the Savior. They kept people from coming to Christ, just like cults do today, by attaching Jesus' name to their weird beliefs. They used his name, and that's what cults do often as well. In fact, a lot of people do that. A lot of false Christian, progressive Christians do that. False Christians do that today. And New Age people do that today. They use Jesus. So people get confused and they think, oh, well, we worship Jesus or we know Jesus. We talk about Jesus, but they mean something completely different. You know, if you talk about me and that you describe me in ways that are completely untrue, that's not me. And if, if you talk about Jesus that way in ways that are completely untrue, you're not talking about Jesus as he really is. And please don't talk about me. But, uh, <laughs> but John reminds those remaining faithful um, that the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to deliver us from sin and the granting of eternal life, that gospel brings us into fellowship, not just with each other, but with the Father and with the Son. That's what he says. And that's not a name-only fellowship. You know, Christianity is not a club. We're not a lodge. You know, we don't wear funny hats and say, hail fellow water buffalo or anything like that. We, we, uh, we don't have secret signs. Our fellowship is with each other and with the true and living God. That's what he's saying. So verse 4 then, it says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So the apostle has the joy of eternal life. He has, the, he has proclaimed the word of life to us, who is Jesus. And as others believed, as other people believe in Jesus, they enter into this fellowship with the apostle and with all other believers and with the Father and the Son. This fellowship is life, and the word of life is manifested and brings us to the Father and the Son in fellowship with them, and that impacts us how? Well, it should give you joy. It should bring joy into your life. Salvation is the greatest source and the most lasting source of joy in a person's life. God loves me and I didn't deserve it. That alone is a cause for joy and celebration. He died for me to make me his child. That provides an incredible joy, a deep joy. So John is saying when we grasp the fellowship that exists between God and believers, our joy, he says, is complete. So we have this wonderful community of the redeemed standing with us and God is our perfect Father, and Jesus is our compassionate and understanding Savior, a complete Savior, an all-sufficient Savior from sin, and that brings us joy. Now, you know, a lot of people don't have a lot of joy in this world. I mean, you see it all the time, or very little joy. In fact, they, 
they, find a lot, they, they struggle to find pleasures, thinking that that's going to bring them joy, but it often doesn't do that. I think C.S. Lewis has some of the best insights on the subject of joy. He seemed to write about it a lot, but he said, he said one thing he said was, I, I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. In other words, you can't find joy, so you just stimulate your pleasure senses in some way, right? You do things, and they could be innocent things or, or wrong things, but just a way to find some kind of relief from the lack of joy, you know? And uh, so he's meditating on that idea. Because joy exceeds pleasure. It's, it's something greater than pleasure. It's an altogether different thing. Joy builds us up in ways that pleasures can't build us up. Pleasures are, as, are for the time they last, and that's about it. But joy actually enlarges your soul. That's the only way I can think of to say it. So John is talking about joy in fellowship, this relationship we have with each other and with the Father and with the Son. So we won't experience that joy without reflecting on just how wonderful it is to be in fellowship with the living God, the very God that became man and paid for our sins, redeemed us through his sacrifice. So God is the joy of our lives. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. So what heaven is all about is bringing us joy. And it's serious about doing that. God is in the joy business. But I think the most important thing he said regarding joy is that he, he said it, you can't think of it as a gift like salvation is a gift. You can't think of it in that kind of way. He, sa he said fellowship is an active thing. It's something we involve ourselves in. It's not... A, like justification, God declares you justified. He doesn't declare you joyful. You, you get that joy by fellowshipping with him. That's where the joy actually comes from. Here's an actual little paragraph of Lewis here. He says, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anybody. And again, what he means is you've got to be with him to experience that joy. You've got to fellowship with him. You've got to know him. You've got to cultivate a relationship with him. You've got to submit yourself to him and receive all that he has to give you. And that's where joy comes from. Maybe sometimes we want God to just hand out joy. But that's not really how it works. Joy is the result of interacting with him, with the Holy One, of being involved with what God is doing. So you have to draw near to God regularly to have the particular kind of joy that comes from the fellowship that we have with him. So if you look up all the Apostle Paul's uses of the words, words joy, when he talks about his joy, it's almost always in relationship to something, people, other than him. And uh, almost always in terms of relationships with believers, his ministry partners, or seeing believers do well in Christ. Now, I can totally relate to that because that's I, maybe that's just a pastor's heart there, but um, my greatest joys, I can say, almost without exception, other than my honey lamb. <laughs> Got to throw that in. But the kind of joy that overwhelms your soul, seriously, for me, it's when I see people I, it's, part of it's when I see people come to Christ, but more so it's when I see people grow in Christ. When I see the lights come on and people start to change and humble themselves before God and love Him, that literally is the greatest joy of my life. And when that happens, it's just so exciting and 
your heart is just full and it doesn't have anything to do with me. It can happen totally separate from me. I don't have, it doesn't like, oh, because you're such a great, no, no, nothing like that. It's just that it just happens. And it's totally the Holy Spirit. So just to watch the Holy Spirit work in a human life is like the greatest thing you can have. And it's, it's just joyful. It's exciting. People start to grow in Christ. They see him as worthy. He's worthy of their love, their time, their energy. And they want to be a part of what, whatever he's doing. And when I see that, I just get thrilled. And Paul was the same way. Anyway, you can only see that if you're actually with people. So if I just huddled in my house all by myself and me and God, I'd never have that joy. I'd never see that happen. But every Christian can see that as they interact with people in the church and in fellowship and people that they know that, that love the Lord. So you can only feel that if you care about other people's spiritual progress. And that should be kind of where your heart is, to care about that. You have to be immersed in and delight in God as he's working in the world and being a part of that. So if you ever want to get warm, you must stand near the fire, right? And if you ever want to get wet, you got to get in the water. Well, that's, Lewis was right about that. And fellowship is the same thing. Now, the Gnostics were not seeking joy in the Lord. They would gladly trade true joy for some philosophical pursuit built, built on their own pride, really, actually. They would rather blame the creator as the cause of wickedness in the world than humble themselves and find the joy of their salvation in Jesus Christ. They would gladly trade the savior Jesus for the guru Jesus, the one with the secret knowledge that'll free them up from their things. So, and they, some of the people in these churches had made that trade. They traded Christ for the guru Jesus and the, the not real Jesus, choosing Gnostic mysticism over the real Christ, the risen and reigning Christ, the savior Jesus Christ. But the true believer prefers joyous fellowship. Well, where do we find joyous fellowship. Well, it's in the living God who made everything. What do we need to know about God to have fellowship with him like that? Well, the first thing we find out in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's it. Theology 101, first day of class. <laughs> God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If, if the first John was, not a, it was an essay instead of a letter, that might be the thesis statement or, or whatever you might want to say about that. But um, what it really is, it's the foundational truth to separate out these Gnostic ideas, these false ideas from the truth. And it, and it also, because this is true, it marks the Gnostics as not Christian. They're not just another kind of Christian. It's like so many of these groups out there or these people trying to draw Christians out of Bible churches into some other kind of thing, they, they deceive and they lie and they misstate things and they're um, misrepresenting God as he really is. So remember, the Gnostics believe that the creator, the craftsman, they called him the demiurge of this world, was not a good being and not the highest God. The highest God is unknowable. He's completely mysterious. You can't possibly know him. But this being that made our world is a, is a malevolent force, some God-like being, but something much more hideous than the real God. So he is the God of the Old Testament to them. And he's made the world. He's trapped our spirits in these wretched bodies because only spirit is good. And the God of the Old Testament lied to us and said that the material world was good, that he made it good.
Well, John announces what here? Is he a malevolent being? Is the God that made the world a malevolent being? No, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And he doesn't stop there, but, you know, truth statements often need to be clarified with negative statements. In other words, if I say uh, something, I mean this, it really helps often to say, I don't mean this when I say this. So you won't misunderstand, right? So he could say God is light and just leave it at that. But somebody else might say, yes, God is light. But I saw Star Wars and he has a dark side too. <laughs> or I'm a Buddhist or whatever. That's where that, you know, George Lucas was a Buddhist. So he actually drew those ideas in and that's what flows in there. So God is moving in Luke Skywalker and God is moving in Darth Vader too. There's a light side and a dark side to the force, right? I mean, people really believe that. That's a, and I don't mean, well, actually, people do believe it because of Star Wars, but, but there's religions, of course, that teach that, that God is both. He's, he's, a, he's a balance. He's balancing the force or whatever you want to say. He is, but what is the real God like? Well, he's light, and he doesn't have a dark side. There's no darkness in God. Everything he does is right. He's good. He's pure. He's a, not a mixture. He's not like us. We're good and bad, and we're wrestling with those things. He's not like that. He doesn't wrestle with his sin. In John's gospel, Jesus Christ is called the light. He calls himself that. In fact, John says in John, the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, this Christ is the true light who coming into the world enlightens every man. He's the very source of the light that we have. John chapter 3, 19, John's gospel. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. That's the, that's the great truth. The light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. That's why people hate Jesus. It's like, how could anybody possibly hate Jesus, right? But a lot of people do because their deeds are evil and he is light and they don't want to hear that. Jesus himself said, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So Jesus, as God become man, brings the light of God directly into the human experience. And as the Holy Spirit opens our hearts, we receive the light into ourselves in a wonderful, profound deep way. But we have to accept him as the true light in order to be saved. John 12, 35, Jesus said, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. That's so true. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. That's Christ talking. Become a son of light. God is light. Christ is the light of God among men. He's the standard for everything we should want to be, hope to follow, um, believe in, trust, emulate. In him is perfection because he is the light and in him there is no darkness at all. So we model ourselves after him. We follow him. In him there is no darkness. So what does that mean for us, those who follow him, those who claim Jesus as their own? What is the mark of a true Christian? Well, there's three things John's going to point out where people can claim something 
with regard to being a Christian, but they're not. It's not true. People claim something that cannot be true about them. And that's how you can kind of tell the false from the true, uh, in, for at least in some of these cases like this. So, and the, what they're dealing with at this particular time, that's exactly it. So, each of these three claims that people make begins with the expression, if we say, and he's probably talking about these Gnostic heretics here, but if we say, so there's, a, if we say in verse 6, there's a, if we say in verse 8, there's a, if we say in verse 10, and we're going to look at the first one today. So John responds to each one. He says in verse 6, if you, if you believe, if you say this, you're a liar. If, if in verse 8 he says, if you believe that, you claim that, you're deceiving yourself. And then in verse 10 he says, if you say this, you make God a liar by what you're saying. So he's, we're going to only deal with the first one today, but those are the three things. So just keep in mind that while these specific things are most likely Gnostic claims, there are a lot of ways that people assert these same things today. So you don't have to be a Gnostic to make these errors. A lot of modern versions of this, and there always have been in every generation. Anyway, the first claim is where our word fellowship comes in. That's in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, talking about God, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So I don't care how religious you are, but you can claim that you have fellowship with God. But if you're walking in darkness, you're lying and you don't practice the truth. So it doesn't matter what you say. You can be the sweetest person with a white shirt and a badge on your shirt knocking on people's doors or whatever. But if you say things that aren't true, if you're walking in darkness, you're a liar and you're not practicing the truth. So the first claim is the person that says, I have fellowship with God, but they walk in darkness. So darkness is any form of evil or sin. It's certainly denying truth, denying the truth about God. That's a form of darkness. That's a great form of darkness. So remember, God is light and in him there is no darkness, no darkness at all. He is pure goodness. So how can anybody who is his or fellowship with him walk in darkness, in sin, right? How can they treat sin like it's nothing? And there's plenty of people around you'll meet in our modern world that say, oh, I'm a Christian too, I just love to sin. <laughs> I mean, they won't, they won't use those words, but when you, when you find out what they do, they do love to sin. And they have no guilt about it, compunctions about it at all. They say, but I'm a Christian. How dare you say you're a better Christian than I am? That kind of attitude. They're walking in darkness. How can they treat sin as nothing? How can they be comfortable with darkness if they're in the light, if they have light? So if I say, let me, get, let me, let me think, Here's, let's put it in different context. If I say I love my job, I, I work at this really great company, Everything is above board there. It's highly ethical. I couldn't ask for a better work environment. Everyone treats me great. It's one of the best places to work I've ever been in. But then let's say I steal from the company. Or let's say I play office politics and try to undermine relationships and get people fighting with each other so I can advance up in the company. Or I lie to my boss. Or I mistreat customers. Or cheat them. Then would you say that I really love this company, that it's the best place in the world to work? I mean, am I, do I, do I love where I work because they're so good or is it because it's a place for me to exercise my wickedness? You know, that's a, 
That's a weird thing. Let's say if you're patriotic. That's an even better one. What if I say I'm a patriot, I'm a proud American, I join the military, I snap to attention when I hear the national anthem, I salute the flag every time I see it, I got a flag on my arm, on my thigh, on my back. All different flags, but they're all American flags. Some have red stripes in the middle, some have blue stripes, and all kinds of things. But when it's dark, I sell military equipment on the side to other people to make money. I give the Chinese information, and they put a lot of money in a certain bank account that I can access later. I like, I like to sow distrust amongst my comrades in arms. I, I love it. It's just fun to watch them get into each, fight each other. So I lie about another guy to this guy. and. I like to cause problems in the unit. I, I gossip all the kind. Now, if I say I'm a patriot and I do those things, what would you think? What would you think? What kind of person would you think I am? You might think I'm a lousy patriot, right? But my guess is you would really think he is not a patriot at all. If I'm selling information to the Chinese, causing all kinds of problems, doing everything against what a true patriot would want to do, I'm not a patriot. Benedict Arnold was not a patriot. So I think we all know that if you are any kind of a decent human being, your, your deeds are going to match your words in some meaningful way. And that assumes, that, of course, that we're all imperfect creatures. It's not saying we're perfect. We're all imperfect. But, but they're in some meaningful, substantial way. Your deeds are going to match your words. If I declare I am in partnership with the living God who is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If I am genuine in my declaration that I am in fellowship with him, then I am going to be with my imperfections still dedicated to living the way he wants me to live, right? That's just normal logical thinking there. That's just true about life. So I'm going to pursue eliminating from my life and my thinking anything that he calls darkness. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to hang on to that. And I will grieve when I fail and I involve myself in darkness. Conforming myself to God's light, well, it's a process. And Paul is really clear. You know, John's book's pretty short. We got all these letters from Paul. He talks a lot about light and darkness. And he talks about it as a process. So we're not talking about perfection or anything like that. In fact, as we read in 1 John, if you claim perfection, you're also a liar. But um, Paul knows that walking in the light is difficult and it's challenging. And Paul reminds us that as a Christian, we have a whole new identity, a whole new citizenship. Colossians 1.13 says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we belong to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light. But he knows we have to break old habits to choose the way of Christ every day. So Romans 13, 12, I'm just going to give you some verses here. He exhorts the believers there to put on the armor of light. He says, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh 
in regard to its lusts. He's writing to Christians here. And he's just reminding them of what it really means to be in the light, to love Christ, to follow him. You've got to put off things. And you've got to put on other things. What do you put on? You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you make no provision for the flesh. He reminds the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4. He says, you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, now he's going to tell them what they need to do because they're not all doing it. Let us not sleep as others do, but be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. He's got to challenge them. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. That's 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 and following. Paul says believers are already sons of light and sons of day, but at the same time, he challenges them to live that out with sobriety and faith and hope and love and all those good things. So if, when 1 John 1, 6 says that if we walk in darkness, we are claiming, while claiming fellowship with God, in whom there is no darkness, that we lie. We lie. The truth is in Jesus. It's who he is. It's what he's done. It's what he commands us to do as our living Lord. And practicing the truth is embracing everything it means to follow him. To follow Jesus. What are you, what are you to believe? How are you supposed to live? That is doing the truth. That's what he's talking about there. You know, in Psalm 51, the great psalm of David's confession of sin, it says in verse 6, he says, Behold, he's talking to God, he says, You desire truth in the innermost being. So, what is the truth, and am I taking it in? What's the truth about me? What's the truth about God? What's the truth about everything God says? What's the truth about how I'm to respond to him? That, that's essential that we take that truth in and respond accordingly. David said that in the midst of a great sin that he had done, not in the midst of the sin, but in repenting for that sin, reflecting on that sin. He's dealing with that. God, you desire truth in the innermost being. Because he would lied to himself. That's why he had to be confronted. Then in verse 7 of First John, First John 1, 7, John offers this contrast. And these are all, I've got to talk about grammar just a little bit, okay? These are all present tense verbs. Now in present tense verbs in English, we just mean it's happening now. In Greek, it means it's ongoing. It's an ongoing reality. That's how present tense is used in Greek. So verse seven, but if we, if we walk, present tense, in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have, present tense, fellowship with one another. Let's stop right there. So walk is present tense. It, it's, it's if we are in the light, step by step, every day, walk. I love the term walk. Some modern translations have actually dumped the word walk. Some of these paraphrases. It's a perfect word for describing the Christian life. Every step we make, all through the day, every day, all the, all our whole life long. It's a, it's a wonderful image of the Christian life, walking, 
walking. So if we are in the light step by step every day, if we order our days and our desires and our time according to the light with Christ at the center, then we have fellowship present tense with one another. So in an ongoing way, we're on the same page, we're loving the same Savior, we're serving the same Father in heaven, proclaiming the same gospel, and all of that is backed up with how we live, how we live our lives. There's more in verse 7, he says, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Now that word cleanses is also present tense. So there's a very real sense, and the New Testament talks about it frequently, that our salvation in Christ are being cleansed by him as a once for all thing. It's done. But there's another sense in which regularly we confess our sins to God and he cleanses us every day. And because of the present tense here, it's got to be that second kind of cleansing. This is, this is part of our walk where we confess our sins and he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Cleanses us from all sin. So that's this daily idea. The cleansing comes as we walk in fellowship. Because, and if we're walking in fellowship with the God in whom is, who is light and in whom there's no darkness at all, we're going to see our sin by comparison to him when we're in fellowship with him, when we're reading his word, when we pray to him. We're going to see our own sin and then we confess our sins and then he cleanses us. and says you're forgiven, I'm taking care of it. As the Spirit convicts our hearts, because the Holy Spirit lives in us, He convicts our hearts of sin, unrighteous anger, pride, covetousness, the sins of the flesh that people are prone to fall into. We know there's forgiveness there in the blood of Christ. He says that. But this is what John wants all of his readers to understand. If we're not living for God, if we're not walking in the light, if we're not practicing the truth, we can't expect to find forgiveness from him. We're not saved. If we have zero interest in that, we're not believers. So we have to take stock and ask ourselves questions. Do we know Jesus? Do I know Jesus? Do we have a repentant heart as we walk along in our life? Or do we just shun him out? I don't care about that. I'm going to do that anyway. Have we put our faith in Christ? Do we love him? If we don't know, but we want to know where we stand with God, we need to repent and cast ourselves wholeheartedly on the mercy of God and the grace of God. He is quick to save if you call upon him to do that. But we need to give ourselves to him and ask him to change our lives and save us from our sins. That doesn't mean... I've got to become perfect to be saved. It means you need to really understand that you're a sinner, that your sins offend God, and if you love God, that will horrify you. And you'll want to do something about it. There's no walking in the light without faith and repentance. You're not walking in the light. Making up your own way is not walking in the light because you're not the light. Christ is the light. So you can't say, this is my way. Well, your way is already not his way, if that's the way you think about it. He is the light, and I'm going to walk in his way. So a lot of people make up their own Jesus, right? That's, that's just playing a game with a name. You're taking the most sacred name in the universe and playing with it. 
The name of the one who will judge all men is Jesus on that great day. And you will stand before, he's not going to stand before you. You're going to stand before him. So when any man or woman truly, savingly comes to Christ, they are sure of one thing. They are not their own. They belong to him. Verse 6 again. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Don't lie. Especially to God. Don't lie to God. Let's pray. Our great God, we invite you to evaluate our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Lord. Reveal to us our need of you if we are merely religious but not yours. And if it is merely our walk that is just weak and we do love you but we're weak and inconsistent and failing, just reveal that as well and keep us from darkness. Help us to live in the gospel and take comfort from the gospel and order our minds and our hearts and our life by the light of Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, well I said there were three if we say statements, so we just looked at one, so next week we'll take on number two.